Father, we love and thank You that You have not left us orphans, but that You come to us in the grace and power of Your blessed Holy Spirit. And we ask now that You would open our eyes that we might see, our ears that we might hear, and that You would transform us by the power of Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, but we're only going to look at the, at the greeting. But hear now the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ Jesus might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. This is the Word of God. The book of Ephesians is an amazing piece of literature. It's only four pages long. So if you were to type this out or print it out in your computer, it's only four pages long. And the, just to let you know that what I'm, what I'm going to base our time together on are these books right here. This little stack. Now, it's pretty impressive, so I want to show you what we're going to do. Uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, I've been asked about this already, so I'm just letting you know. Uh, Let's Study Ephesians by Dr. Ferguson is one of the main texts I'll be using along with the message of Ephesians by John Stott. So if you, if you really want to buy some really great books that where you can dig into the book of Ephesians, these two I recommend very highly. The third one I'll be using is uh, by Dr. Sproul, R.C., The Purpose of God. Of course, this hallowed volume right here, you can probably guess who wrote this one. Anybody? John Calvin. Okay, you can't do Ephesians without John Calvin. And then, of course, uh, one of my professors, uh, uh, Dr. Kistemaker and Dr. Hendrickson, the Reformed uh, Commentaries. So these are what I'm using as our source. Dr. Ferguson says that the 
book of Ephesians contains in it, listen carefully, what we call and what will be the theme of our time together for these next months, the grammar of the Gospel. Now all of you know that grammar is taking words and putting them together. It's sentence construction. In other words, you've got to have good grammar in order so people can understand what you're saying. It's not enough just to have words that are clear and you know the definition. You have to organize those words in, a, in good grammar. Otherwise, you don't know what, what the person is saying. And one of the most famous, I think in recent times, of poor grammar comes to us from popular culture, the great Jedi Master, Yoda. And here's some examples of some convoluted grammar. When 900 years you are... Look as good you will not. Yes, a Jedi's strength flows from the Force. But beware of the dark side. Anger, fear, aggression. The dark side they are. Easily they flow. Quick to join you in a fight. But if once you start down the dark path forever, it will dominate your destiny. Consume you. It will. So you can see that Yoda was very much into the passive voice and rearranging words in a way that was kind of hard to understand. Well, Paul does something similar, only he doesn't do Yoda-ish speech, but he uses incredibly rich vocabulary and amazing grammar. And so Dr. Ferguson says in his commentator, and by the way, there are many people who agree with this, not just Sinclair Ferguson, that if you don't understand the grammar, the way the gospel is put together, you no longer have Christianity. You have some other religion. You do not have Christianity without the right grammar. So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the grammar of the gospel as The Apostle Paul laid it out in Ephesians. We'll talk about it a little bit more this morning. Let me tell you very quickly uh, just a few things about the Ephesian church and then we'll launch into it because you've got to know who Paul was writing to, what the letter was all about. The uh, church at Ephesus was a very successful church. Ephesus was the capital city, the central city of Asia Minor in what is today Turkey. And so if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, I would recommend you look. Ephesus is in Asia Minor. It's in Turkey. It was a huge city. Over 300,000 people, archaeologists believe, lived in Ephesus. Now, that may seem small by our standards when we have El Paso is close to a million people. And so we see, oh, that's not that big. But in the ancient world, cities did not get that big. So this was a huge metropolitan city, Ephesus was the capital city of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, but Ephesus was de facto the capital of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Ephesus was multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic. The trade routes ran through Ephesus. The religions were pluralistic. They had every religion that you can imagine was at Ephesus. The major religion in Ephesus was to the goddess Diana, or in some of your translations, Artemis. And this goddess 
was a goddess of fertility. Just like if you remember from last uh, some months ago, we were finishing up our study in the book of First and Second Kings, the god Baal. All of the Eastern religions had these deities who were primarily focused on fertility. And so the temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was located in Ephesus. It was a massive structure built on pillars, and in there they worshipped Diana, uh, the, the god of the Ephesians. Um, the Ephesian church also had this distinction. Each week we'll talk a little bit more about the Ephesian church. The Apostle Paul was the pastor of Ephesus for three years. And along with Paul was Aquila, Priscilla, some of you will recognize these names from the book of Acts, Apollos, the eloquent Apollos, a brilliant man. Many scholars believe that the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, made Ephesus his headquarters. So can you imagine, it would be like living in, uh, in Philadelphia during the heyday of Westminster Seminary when every scholar that had, was worth his salt was there in Philly. Or like when I moved to Orlando, all of these powerhouses had moved to Orlando because they were getting old, they wanted to wear white shoes and play golf. So all of those cool scholars all gathered in Orlando. So I was blessed to be in Orlando when, I, you know, Roger Nicole was in Orlando and R.C. Sproul was in Orlando and Simon Kistemaker, one big names. Big, you may not know who they are, but they were, they're big names. And there they are. So that's what Ephesus was like. And yet, Ephesus was under such spiritual pressure and such amazing attack from the world, much like the world we live in. ISIS existed then. There were horrific persecutions, horrific pressure on Christians. Christianity was under assault, and many of you feel like we're all oh, we're under assault. Well, we're really not in America. We've got it good. But other places, not so good. This church was under heavy assault. And so what Paul had to say to the Ephesians, he is saying to us, we live in that same world. And so uh, let's, let's get into it. I'm going to skip a little bit here because uh, for time's sake, but I have a number of quotes here that I think are, are amazing, but I'm just going to read one. When Princeton was the powerhouse, the uh, theological seminary, when B.B. Warfield and all these great men were there at, at Princeton, this president of Princeton, John McKay, said this, listen, Amazing. This, if this doesn't warm your heart, then I can't help you. To this book, talking about Ephesians, to this book I owe my life. In it, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experience, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ had become the center of everything. I had been made alive here in the book of Ephesians is distilled the essence of Christian religion. The most authoritative and most consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. This letter, listen, this letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings. Doctrine. 
set to music. Do you think the Ephesians had an effect on this brilliant man? It had captured his soul. The book of Ephesians was said to be John Calvin's favorite book in the Bible. So let's let it go down deep into our hearts. I think it'll just thrill you to no end. So this morning, quickly, let's look at three things. How to live in pluralistic society. How to live in pluralism. And we'll define that in a moment. Secondly, second part of your outline. How to learn the grammar of the Gospel. What exactly is the grammar of the Gospel? How are these things put together? And what do they mean? And finally, we'll look at the truth uh, the truth that sings. So pluralism, pluralism. What is pluralism? Pluralism is basically this. That's a big word, but don't get scared. Here's the definition. I've shrunk it down a little bit, but here's what it means. Pluralism says multiple religious views, multiple religious worldviews are all equally valid. Does that sound familiar? Multiple religious worldviews are all equally valid and acceptable as pathways to God, whoever He, she, or it may be. So we're not going to define God. We're just going to say, look, whatever God may be, He, she, or it, any pathway will get you there as long as you're sincere and you follow your religion and do whatever. That's pluralism. And... Uh, Pluralism, by the way, is way more than tolerance. It's not just saying, well, we'll put up with any religion. It's not saying that. It's more than tolerism. It's saying that any of these, they're all equally valid. They all sit together on the same plane, and they have the same weight and the same value. Now, pluralism is over, set over against what we call exclusivism. And exclusivism is the teaching that our religion is the right religion, and that the way to God is through this religion exclusively. In other words, you follow some other path, you're not going to get to the right destination. Follow this path, you will get to the destination. Now, I have to tell you this. Look, listen, listen carefully, and maybe over the weeks we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Every religion practices pluralism. And every religion, including Christianity, by the way. So, Listen carefully. Every religion has pluralistic elements and practices a kind of pluralism. But every religion also practices exclusivism. Every religion says this is the right way. Some of them may say, we are saying, here's what we're saying. Our Lord, our God has said this. I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. You with me? That's exclusivism. And Jesus said those words. But Jesus also said we are to love who? Who? Our neighbors. That means that you tolerate and are respectful to every religion possible. You do not go around with a gun and force people to join your religion or else you die. You with me? Now, Christianity has practiced that and every time it has, what has been the result? Disaster. 
We have to violate. Listen, folks, we have to violate our religion to make people join our religion. Are you with me? So we practice both exclusivism and a sort of pluralism, a tolerance in love. We love our neighbors, even if they don't believe like us. In fact, Jesus said, bless who? Bless your enemies. Love those that persecute you. Extend grace to those that are unkind to you. And, and it's rare that the church gets its head around that reality. We want to treat other people the way they treat us. And as the world becomes more hostile, folks, and you as the church and me as your pastor, as we are required to live together in an environment that is hostile, we're going to have to learn how to do that. So pluralism has its own continuum, if you will. In pluralism, there's religions that say, oh, everything's okay. But by saying that, they're exclusively saying everything's okay. They're making a truth claim that's exclusive. And religions like Christianity that say only Jesus, the only way to salvation, that's exclusivism or Islam or any other form of religion you want. Everybody has its own form of tolerance and pluralism. And in our religion, we say Jesus is the only way, but we are to be respectful and we are to love our neighbors. Amen? Okay. All right. Within the exclusive world of Christianity, the minute you say Jesus Christ is the way and there is no other way, there's going to be what we call irreconcilable hostility. There are going to be people out there that are threatened by that exclusive claim. And you've seen it throughout history. It was the same thing in ancient Israel. They faced the same thing. They had the same sorts of people want to kill them when they said there is but one God and here He lives in this temple right here. And that drew all kinds of attention to them and all kinds of enmity to them. So there's internal, what the Apostle Paul lays out to the church when he says to the saints who are at Ephesus, he's identifying a certain people who lived in a certain culture, in a certain society of pluralism. And so everything he's about to say is going to be based on that reality. In chapter 4, he says, here's the internal, the internal pressure that you're going to find to violate the reality of your new humanity. Your new Christ this Christian, Christianity is going to be challenged internally and externally. Internally, here it is. Listen, don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility. Listen. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is identifying right from the get-go, right in the middle of the book, he's saying, Christian people, listen. One of the pressures that's going to come against you, one of the things that's going to happen to you is the pressure not to live in love. Not to be tolerant. Not to put up with people. Not to bear with one another. Not to have humility. Do you know that every church in the United States of America, including our own, I'm ashamed to say it, have people, 
Even pastors, now I would never do this, but they have pastors, you're supposed to laugh at that. The, the, we, we have, we, we, go, we get crossways with each other and we hurt each other and we wound each other. Yes, every church on the face of the earth, even the very best ones, and even the very best one, Christ the King in El Paso, even the best ones, we all do it. We all break each other's hearts. Do you know that? Every day of our lives, we don't live in love. We often don't even get along with our spouse. We get crossways with our children. We hate our jobs. We can't stand the president. Don't say amen. I mean, come on. You, you think about it. We are, we are just a bundle of nerves. And Paul knows that these internal pressures are going to exist. Who doesn't suffer from that? We all do. There are days when I wake up in the morning, I don't want to get out of bed. I'm, I'm just freaking out. And you're like that too. We're all like that. Paul says, look, walk in a, many wor a manner worthy of your calling, who you are. He says, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to live in a place where humility is hard, gentleness is hard, patience is impossible, bearing with one another. What that means is you're putting up with people that are antagonistic to you. It's not just putting up. You know, it's very easy for me to put up with certain people in the church because they like me and they're nice to me. Same thing with you. And there are people that are just antagonistic. They never have anything good to say. I don't like you. I don't like the way you dress. I don't like your sermons. I don't like the car you drive. I don't like it. It's always that. And you think, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with them? My, look, I'm ashamed to say it, but I'll just tell you. I have to use myself as an example. I don't want to be too self-referential. I want to just forget those people and write them off and go about my business. Do, yes? Am I the only one? No, of course not. We all do that. We surround our ourselves with people that like us. And Paul is saying, look, you're going to be in a pluralistic society where you all don't get along, so you've got to practice this. You have to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've been given. Then he talks about external pressures, and he says this. In chapter 6, this is at the very end. Our struggle, listen now, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what he's saying basically is this. We're going to have internal and external pressure. External pressure from demonic forces, from political entities that are being driven by demonic force, by governments that are antagonistic towards us, by uh, denominations that go off the rails and say, we no longer believe the Bible and uh, we're not going to teach the Bible anymore because it's an antiquated book and we're going to do this. And so there's this pressure from outside, there's pressure from inside, and Paul is telling his people, here is how you combat pluralism. So that's what pluralism is. It's an irreconcilable hostility with exclusivism. They're always going to be butting heads. The question is, how do you butt heads? How do you do it? Can you do it gently and in love with a willingness to sacrifice? Or are you going to go into combat where you shred people and destroy them? And in order to combat it, we must learn. Listen, folks, this is point two. We have to learn the grammar of the Gospel. 
And Paul, when he wrote this book, it was not stream of consciousness and he's just t- talking and his scribe or amanuensis is writing. No, no, Paul sat down and he thought deeply about what he wanted to say. And you'll see it as it goes on. But listen to how you combat pluralism. Religious pluralism and the pluralism of the world around us. Pluralism says this, folks, very simple. And, and this is going to resonate with a lot of you. What you do defines who you are. What you do defines who you are. So what that looks like is, what I do if I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a banker, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, uh, if I'm a pastor, if I'm this or that, our career, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm this, I'm that, whatever the case may be. That what you do defines who you are. In other words, we start to take identity from what we do. Now, that's not all bad, but it is bad when that's all there is, when that becomes your sole identity because the way you know is when something is taken away from you, you lose your identity. This has happened to me so many times I can't even tell you, but it could be career, could be money, could be our looks, our beauty. Listen, ladies and young girls, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the problems we have in our society today is that the pressure on women to look, and it's not just today, it's every generation. This is nothing new. Every generation has put great pressure on women to look and act and, and be a certain way. And if you don't fit that, you're always questioning your identity. Your worth, your value. Some of us use our families that way. We look around, well, I've got my kids are all obedient and my husband's good, you know, my wife is in order. We do all of that and that gives us our identity so we feel totally secure. I'm good. I'm good. And one of your kids goes off the rail or like in Montevina, both of my kids went off the rail and then you're going, oh my gosh, I hope nobody finds out. My identity was tied up in my children. Career, status, power. How much power do you have? When you walk in the bank, do people stand up? You know. What degrees do you have? Well, I have a PhD. I have an, an MMA. I, I, I'm, uh, I fight in a cage. I, uh... Ah, you got it. Look, I mean, we define ourselves by these things and they start to get a hold of us to the point that if we lose them or they don't go the way we want, our identity starts to get shattered. That's what pluralism, to combat that. Paul knows that. Look, he's writing to a bunch of people that knew that. They lived that back in the ancient world. This is not new. And Paul steps in and he says, learn the grammar of the Gospel. And here's what Dr. Ferguson says, we cannot understand a language without knowing the basic rules of its grammar. The same is true of the Gospel. It has a grammar. The Gospel has a grammar. The grammar is very clearly illustrated in Ephesians. The first part, listen folks, the first three, Ephesians has six chapters, chapters one through three. First half contains statements in which the verbs are almost exclusively in what is called the indicative mood. In other words, they are all the verbs without, with only one exception, and it's not even all it's telling you to do is to remember. 
all of the rest of the verbs in the first three chapters of Ephesians all say this. This is who you are. You're not a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. You're not general of uh, General. Mo- you're not the general of the army. You're not the corporate co- uh, president of General Motors. You're not the pastor of Christ the King. You're not the husband of Marty V and the and the dad of uh, Justin and Amanda. You're not the grandfather of four dogs and a beautiful grandbaby. You're not. That's not who you are. You're a new creature in Christ. You're something new, and that. That new identity, listen folks, that new identity will give all those other identities their real meaning. You don't just say, okay, I don't want to be anything, I want to go live on a pole. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that all of those are going to get and derive their identity from this master identity. Now you can have an identity so deep inside your soul that it can't be touched that it can't be taken, that it can't be wounded by any force known to man. No power, no darkness, no fear, no loss, no pain, no nothing can take it away. Can you be hurt? Oh yes. Can you be destroyed? Never. The body they may kill. This truth abideth still. Your word endures forever. What God has said about you, Christ the King Church, what God has said about you is engraven in stone. He said He's written it on in your hand. It's a name that only He and you know and it can't be taken away from you. Your identity. Your real name. Think about it. The security, the peace, the glory of that. That's what Paul is saying. The indicative mood. They tell us what God has already done for us in Christ. In fact, only once in chapters 1-3 through does Paul urge us to do anything and that's to remember who we are. By contrast, the second part of the letter is full of the imperative mood. In other words, the verbs all change. You don't think Paul was thinking about this? In the, in, in the second half, he says, now, now that you know who you are, now go do this, do this, do this, do this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves He's starting to give commands. Imperative commands. They must be done. Why? Because this is who you are. Not what you do defines who you are, but who you are defines what you do. If you get those backwards, you no longer have Christianity. Did you hear what I said? If you get them backwards, you don't have Christianity. If what you do defines who you are, you are not a Christian. You are a what? Class. Say the word. Starts with a PH, ends with a double E. You're a Pharisee. A Pharisee was defined by what he did. You remember the woman uh, that was caught in adultery? Uh, Scott Sauls had this amazing quote up on Facebook this week. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Or, better translation, now leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. And Scott Sauls said, Reverse the order of those sentences and you no longer have Christianity. Did you hear that? 
Leave your life of sin, and then I won't condemn you. Does that sound like a, let's all go, let's leave right now and go to Starbucks and forget church. I mean, it's a, it's a waste of time. Leave your life of sin, and then I'll accept you. That's another religion. I forgive you. I accept you. I do not condemn you. Now. Now that you're new, now that you're forgiven, now that I've accepted you, now leave your life of sin. Do you see the difference, folks? It's all the difference in the world. That's Christianity. The other isn't. And Paul knows that that's the grammar of the Gospel. He calls them saints. Hagios. He says, I'm writing to the saints at Ephesus. The Hagios at seven. He says, I'm writing to the holy ones. Let me see a show of hands. Be careful. How many of you are holy? Get them up, everyone. If you, otherwise, we're going to ask you to come up here and be baptized and get saved. We're going to get our hose out and spray you down. You know what? You are holy. You are the hagios of God. You are the holy ones of God. I'm not holy. You know why you don't think that? Because you think holiness is behavior. Holiness is not primarily behavior. Holiness is primarily identity. It's being separated. He calls you to be holy. That means He calls you to be His. He separates you to be His. And He says, you're holy. Yeah, but watch me sin. Okay, so you're a sinner, but you're still holy. You're a holy sinner. So I don't get that. Well, listen, neither do I, folks. That's why, that's why the Gospel's so amazing to me. I don't get it either. But we are holy. We're set apart to God. Now, that holiness... Having our identity changed will change your behavior. And you will become more holy in your behavior. You will uh, eschew, don't you love that word? Eschew evil and you'll embrace good. You'll want to do what is right. How many of you want to do what is right? Okay, the rest of you, we're going to pray for you. Yeah, yes, we want to do, everybody wants to do what's right. Even bad people, even unbelievers want to do what's right. People want to do what's right. And what God has said to us in the Gospel of Ephesians, I call it the Gospel of Ephesians because it's good news. What God has said to us is, I will change you so that you can be what, I, what you really are meant to be. I'll change you so you can be what you're meant to be. We are hagios, holy ones. We are faithful in Christ Jesus, he said. Faithfulness is a response to God's grace. In other words, when God makes you holy, when He changes you, when He regenerates you, when He pours, lavishes, Paul says in his first chapter, lavishes His grace on you, that makes you different and you become faithful. Your response to God is faithfulness. It's not always doing what is right. Sometimes you're going to do what's wrong. And so when you do, you repent and believe the Gospel. It's glorious. It's wonderful. Well, I have to finish. The third point, real quickly. Truth that sings. That's the grammar of the Gospel. Pluralism. What you do defines who you are. Gospel says who you are defines what you do. Okay? That's the grammar. Truth that sings. If you look at this uh, the Apostle Paul sums up his thesis for all of Ephesians in these words, in Christ Jesus, from God the Father, and the Lord Jesus. You see, we live, folks, in a pluralistic world. And by the way, everyone has and everyone does. 
Stop wringing your hands thinking that the, uh, uh, that the United States of America is, is, oh no, it's pluralistic now, it used to be something else. No, they codified pluralism in the Constitution of the United States uh, in uh, which amendment? By not establishing religion, those men, brilliant men, but they self-consciously codified in the law of the land of the United States a pluralistic society. You've got to come to grips with that. The Apostle Paul said, you're going to live in pluralism, so learn the, the grammar of the Gospel. How do you do that? How do you live a transformed life? How does that really take place in each of us? And he says it's through union with Christ. He says in Him, through Him, with Him, 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 grace. Let me finish with this, folks. Grace and peace from God our Father to you and me, grace and peace. Do you know the only human being that never received grace? Do you know who He was? He never received any grace. Do you know what Jesus got? He got justice. He got your justice. He got what you and I deserve. He got no grace from God. The only human being that never received grace, but got pure justice. Yours and mine. And peace, grace and peace. I don't know what kind of turmoil you've gone through. I know some of you have had trials that are unbelievable, horrible. But no one lost peace like Jesus. No human being has ever experienced forsakenness to that degree. The depth of the darkness into which Jesus Christ descended is unknown. It is unfathomable. It is incomprehensible. None of us will ever know. Grace, He got none. Peace, it was taken away. Why? So that you could be in Him so that you could find forgiveness in His cross through His blood, so that you and I could have real peace and real grace. R.C. Sproul said, we are not saved by grace, we're saved by works. We're saved, R.C. says, we're saved the old-fashioned way by works. Only they're not your works. They're His works. It's His life in Him, through Him, with Him. That's how we're saved. And Paul can barely contain himself. He sings this beautiful song in the chapter 1 to communicate and to tell the Ephesians, will you believe the Gospel? Will you believe it? Will you? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, please help us to know and understand Your truth and to be the people that You have desired us to be and made possible for us to be. And I pray this morning that You will change our hearts, Father, as we come to Your table, as we taste and see that Your good and Your mercy endures forever, that You have loved us and lavished on us a grace that is almost beyond compare. Please help us, save us, have mercy on us, O God. According to Your grace, I pray. Amen.